let's get started with our first song. <clears throat> first song is Shout to the Lord. And I just hope that this could be a song of praise for all of us, um, for God's good love. <laughs>
for this beautiful morning that we can gather and sing praises to you, um, listen to your word, uh, and share how you have been working in our lives, Lord. Um, I pray that this time would be pleasing to you um, as we come before you as sinners, Lord, as your servants and your followers. Um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, just keep our hearts in the right places. Um, that we would focus on you and delight in your word. Um, I pray for the message, um, that we would be able to listen to it with open ears and open eyes, um, that the words would be spoken um, and led by the Spirit. Um, we thank you so much for how much you love us and how much you have already um, been so faithful to us and have cared for us, Lord. Thank you and love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you for coming and joining us uh, for worship this morning. Yesterday, Jackie was in California. And I told her uh, it's sunny in Pittsburgh, and she didn't believe me. Now she's back. You can see a beautiful day that the Lord has given to us. It's sunny, and uh, we're in the Lord's presence and with each other. So I'm very thankful uh, we can enjoy uh, our worship together uh, in the Lord's presence. This would normally be our time for offering. I'm on now. Thank you. You know that we're trying um, to do things more by sending in your offering to the church, which is in your um, bulletin with the announcement, the address, or if you want to send electronically. I think many of you have figured out how to do it through your bank uh, electronically. A few announcements here. You know, this morning we're to pray for um, our missionaries the missionaries we're praying for this morning are Calvin and Pearl Lai. Um, 
it's a really interesting couple because this couple back in the 80s helped us write our constitution. Uh, Calvin was my Sunday school teacher in sixth grade and they're really quite instrumental in helping uh, establish our church all the way back in the 80s. Since then, um, they've been missionaries in Germany and Hong Kong. And if you look um, on the missionary moment in the back of your bulletin, you'll find that he's actually undergoing surgery um, for a kidney a mass that they found. So we can pray for him this morning as he's in Los Angeles now. And then after the surgery, hopefully uh, he can go back um, to Hong Kong. And they always like to update you on what's been happening in our congregation. We want to thank Jay and Xiaobo again for doing so many uh, good acts. And they put a good team together. I think Alice is on the team, Manas on the team. Many others have donated mass, food, um, money. And uh, Jay and Xiaobo have been excellent at reaching out to our community. Uh, I can't read to you all the people that they've um, sent mass to and uh, helped deliver food to. But again, I believe PCC is being salt and light uh, during this time. So thank you all for praying and donating and thinking about ways that we can help our community. I wanted to share with you a very special letter. This letter came to uh, PCC. It was actually sent to the elders, but I'd like to read something encouraging uh, from this couple. Dear PCC elders, grace and peace in Christ to you and your families and dear brothers. I thought a handwritten letter would be a nice change. Since September 2019, we've joined PCC worship and seen the Lord's grace and blessings to the church and to our family. We've seen the two boys enjoy the children and youth worship at Bible studies. We fully intend to join PCC membership so we can participate in its membership activities. The pandemic has put a slight wrinkle in our plans to become more involved and um, this wife wants to um, join a baptism class when she gets back. So I just wanna share that with you that um, God is still doing things during this pandemic. Um, this couple just can't wait to be back together and wanted us to know this as, as elders and as our church, I wanted to share that uh, all of us are longing to be back together. Uh, it's special um, that so many are gathering here online to worship but even more special when we get a chance to do that. So it's one of our prayer requests this morning uh, as we get ready um, to reopen, continue to pray for PCC. So I'd like to open up this time now. If there are prayer requests, I'll take just a few and then we'll pray together uh, before we begin our worship time uh, through studying the word. Is there anyone that has a prayer request this morning? I'm really thankful so many of you joined yesterday for our prayer meeting. Very encouraging to see people coming on Saturday. I know ACF has prayer meetings on Monday and Wednesday as well. Then even this morning, continue to pray. Um, anyone else? 
we've had one answer to prayer already as uh, we are able to enjoy Zoom together. Uh, this is something that we weren't able to do last week. And uh, thank you that, uh, thank the Lord that uh, Zoom is working well this morning. Jimmy, you have a prayer request? Yes. Can he hear you? I hope you guys can hear me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we had a little bit of a biking trip yesterday, and um, we saw a lady that fell, and um, she hit her head pretty badly. And um, so if, you, um, if we all can pray for her. Didn't get her name. Um, but she was a young lady and, uh, I believe that she sustained a head injury. So, uh, if we can all pray as a congregation, uh, that would be nice. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Jeremy, for bringing that. I'm sure you were a good Samaritan and helped her in any way you could. Okay. Mom, I saw your hand raised. Would you like to share something? Let's continue to pray for housing for Pastor Hans and his family. Okay, that's a great prayer request. We look forward for them to be in Pittsburgh so they can enjoy the Pittsburgh sun as well. So hopefully uh, they will be here soon. Something to pray for. Jackie, I think I saw your hand as well. Yeah. Um, if we could just pray for the ACF leaders um, and this summer ACF plans. Uh, I know that they're in the works. Um, I'm not too sure about the details, but um, um, <laughs> how things will go online as um, basically all of the students will be away um, and not in Pittsburgh. So it will be interesting and probably a blessing because there will be faces that we don't normally see during the summer. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I know they spent three hours yesterday going over a lot of uh, material, um, praying, finding God's will for vision and theme for the fall. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay, we have some good things to pray about. Why don't we uh, spend the next few minutes in prayer then? Father, I pray that you do find our hearts thankful this morning. Thankful that we can worship here on Zoom. Thankful that we can be in your presence with our brothers and sisters gathered here. May you find our hearts thankful. Um, during our praise time, we sang about Christ and what he's done for us. At the very name of Jesus, our hearts should have joy and thankfulness for the grace and mercy that he's shown to us. Thank you for the many acts of kindness that have been demonstrated during this pandemic through our church, through our members, even from our government, even from people we don't know. May we find that you're giving us opportunities to love and care for the world around us. Thank you that Jimmy and Diane have a special heart for those in need. And we pray for this young woman that fell yesterday May she um, recover quickly. And even during this time of pain and healing, may she know that you're a God that loves her, cares about her, even more than a physical, you care about her heart. 
and may she um, turn to you during this time of recovery. Thank you for bringing Pastor Hans and Irene and their family to be our shepherd here at PCC. Thank you for the heart that loves you, cares so much for your flock. And we ask that you open up the right place at the right time for them to come here to Pittsburgh and have a new home that their family might know that you've led them here to um, minister and to be ministered to as part of this PCC family. May you make their transition smooth and quick and one that shows that you're a God over every circumstance as you work out all the details of their move. Thank you for our ACFers that um, are learning that you're a good God, knowing that you are one that loves and cares about them. As they discover that, may they share this joy, this love with each other. Thank you for our leaders, particularly as they plan, as they strategize for the fall. May give them special wisdom as they work out theme and purpose. Allow the uh, summer ACF to go well as speakers come in and speak to the ACFers. May their hearts be filled with joy as they learn and grow from men and women who've gone before them and share their wisdom with them. This morning, Father, we ask that you meet us here in a very special way. As Pastor Hans brings us your word from John 11, may it change our hearts as it changed Mary and Martha, Thomas. May it change our hearts as well as we sit at the feet of Christ this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Now we'll have um, scripture reading. Okay, if we can read together, let's go ahead and read uh, from John 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Okay, we'll turn this time over to Pastor Hans. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Today we continue through this drama of salvation that we entered into last week with Pastor Adam 
in John chapter 11. And I'm going to do something a little different this morning in that I know that this is a passage for many of us that is very familiar. It's one of the best known stories of the Bible. And you will no doubt hear this particular passage uh, oftentimes on Sunday mornings if you continue to go to church. And so this morning, what I would like to do is take you through this passage and explain some of the reasons that we understand this particular passage in the way that we have, because you will hear some different interpretations of this passage. Now, the danger in doing this is that the scripture is to engage us, not only intellectually, but they are to make a change in our hearts, in how we understand our relationship with our Lord, in terms of understanding his care and concern for us. And yet, even this week, uh, in, in how we prepare these passages, Gordon and Adam and I get together and we discuss uh, our understanding and what we've seen through. And this is such an emotionally powerful passage that even as we were sharing our observations, it was something that almost brought me to tears. And so this morning as we go through, I'm going to pray that the Lord will engage our hearts as well as our minds. But I'm also going to go through why it is that we see the particular interpretation of some of these events, which, which can be taken in different ways. But we have to try to understand and see what John's intent was in giving us this passage. And so as we come to uh, John chapter 11, and we're looking at the account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your great, precious word that brings light and life into our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning as we come together in a format which makes the scripture and one another seem more distant. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would awaken our hearts and awaken our minds and help us to receive your truth. Not only so that we see what it means that you are the resurrection and life, but in a way that breathes life and light into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the heart that is shown through this passage. And pray that as we continue through your word, that you would continue to teach your people, to raise us up to you, that one day we might come to see you face to face, to dwell in the presence of the Lord our God. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin this morning, we've seen already in the book of John, and particularly last week, 
some very intriguing bits and pieces where he's told us that last week, Lazarus had fallen sick and that a messenger had been sent from Mary and Martha, this family that Jesus loves, to call to Jesus, say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And the hope is that the teacher will come and heal his servant and preserve his life. And in response, we see that Jesus deliberately allows Lazarus to die. And not only allows Lazarus to die, but in fact, orchestrates all the events so that Lazarus will die while he is away and that he will be laid in a tomb for four days. And last week, Adam led us up, if I could use a metaphor, up a mountain trail. And we're getting all these bits and pieces and we don't see yet how they will fit together. But what we've seen so far, in a sense, is that the difficult part of our And now we've come out on a bluff and there's a panorama spread before us, a drama, if you will, of salvation that comes to us in three distinct acts. And so I want to take us this morning through these three encounters that Jesus has. First, the encounter of Jesus with Martha, then the encounter of Jesus with Mary, and then finally the encounter of Jesus with Lazarus. And so turn with me, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 11, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 17 to 44. And so last week, Adam gave us the account of Lazarus's death. And here, I would like to make a few observations. And I want us to be thinking about some questions as we look at this passage. Why does all this happen? Why does Jesus orchestrate the death of one of his beloved servants? And we don't want to minimize the death of Lazarus, simply saying that, the Lord will raise him again. Because Lazarus still needs to fall ill. He still needs to suffer, face the fear of dying, and then actually die. And his family has to watch him go through this suffering, hope that perhaps Jesus will be able to come and rescue him, but then realize that Jesus will not be there that their brother will die and then actually lay him in the tomb and mourn his death. And in a very real sense, even when Jesus comes, what we see is that the resurrection that Lazarus experiences is not like the one that we will look forward to one day. And so if there's relief brought to this suffering, it's not a relief that is any greater than what we experience when we lose those 
whom we love. And so then the one question that we might ask is, how can Jesus do something like this? Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Lazarus' sisters, and everyone knows this. And yet, God puts Lazarus through all this simply to make a point. And what we are told is that this illness is for the purpose of the glory of God. And this reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my law school classmates one time, where when she was thinking about Christianity, asked me the question about the glory of God. And her trouble with Christianity was that God was so concerned with his glory. And to her, it seemed very much that a God who was concerned with his own glory was on an ego trip. And when we come to a passage like this, I'm glad that I didn't have to try to explain to her that God was so concerned with his glory that he would intentionally cause one of his servants to die in order to bring greater glory to his son. And so we see that the purpose of this entire episode of Lazarus' death is that Jesus might be glorified and that the means of glorifying Jesus will be the very death of Lazarus. The way the disciples will see the glory of God is through faith. Uh, some further observations is that this miracle that we see in this passage today will be the greatest of the public miracles that Jesus performs, save one. And we also see that this miracle reveals that Jesus' mission, the purpose of the incarnation, is to reestablish God's relationship with us. One of the things we know about this event is that there is a divine purpose then. There is a divine intent behind this miracle. And there is an underlying coherence that ties all of these various events together. And we will begin to understand this passage better if we ask ourselves some questions as we go through this passage. First of all, we will see that despite the fact that Jesus' encounter with Martha and Jesus' encounter with Mary are very similar. In fact, they say almost exactly the same thing to him. And yet, they receive very different responses. And so why is there a different response to Martha and Mary? A second question. Why does Jesus weep if he's about to raise Lazarus? And so we're going to look at this drama as a 
three-part drama of salvation. And as we move into the first act of this three-part drama, I want us especially to recall an important piece of this puzzle that Adam gave to us last week concerning Jesus' disciples. And Jesus told us earlier in chapter 9 that his sheep hear his voice. And what does it mean that the sheep, that we hear his voice? Well, one thing it means is that we follow Jesus. But what does it mean that we follow Jesus? Well, one part of it certainly is, is that when we follow Jesus or when we hear his voice, we think differently about Jesus than the world does. And it also means that we're in this relationship with Jesus. And on our part, what we see through this interaction between first Thomas and Jesus, and then Jesus with Martha, is that we are learning to trust him. And there's a very incomplete aspect of our relationship with Jesus, which is that we do not know him very well, and our trust and faith with him is quite weak. And so Adam helped us to see last week that Thomas really did not have a very good understanding of Jesus and what Jesus was about. But that Thomas was following Jesus. And so if you recall from last week, Thomas said, go to Bethany to awaken Lazarus, who Jesus says, he's dead. And so now we have, and he was glad that he was not there so that the disciples might believe. But from Thomas's perspective, this is a very bad move because the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. And so they had actually left Jerusalem to go to this remote area in order to escape being killed by the Jews. Now, in Thomas's mind, Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah, and yet this seemed to be a very poor choice of strategies. Because if you are going to start a revolt, if you are going to rebel against Rome and free Israel from Roman domination, the place to start would probably not be the seat of your enemies power. Why go to the place where they have the most troops, where they'll be able to capture and execute you? And so Thomas then says, when Jesus determines to go to Bethany, he says, let us also go that we may die with him. And so what we see here is that Thomas's faith is very weak and his understanding is very poor. And yet he's willing to follow. And as we saw last week, that is one of the characteristics of the sheep of Jesus, that they follow their shepherd, even in this case where they do not understand very well his mission. And so as we come to verse 17, we see that when Jesus comes, Lazarus is already in the tomb for four days, and Martha comes to meet him. And she says to him the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, many of us come to this passage with a certain understanding of Martha and Mary. And it comes from the account in the book of Luke, where Martha is very busy when Jesus comes to their household 
uh, but Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so we come to this passage with the understanding that probably Martha doesn't really get it, while Mary does. And I would urge you to set aside that understanding, because that account is not part of John's perspective. It's not part of how John is telling his story. Luke, at that point in time, it was probably already extant. It was a story that people uh, would have been familiar with, but in terms of John's presentation, it's not a point that he makes. And I want us to note that when Martha comes to Jesus, she's not doing anything wrong. Consider what has probably already been going on. Lazarus has fallen sick. And the sisters have sent to Jesus in order to tell their rabbi, one they know has already performed many miracles of healing, and asking him to come and to heal their brother. And so she comes and makes this statement knowing. So they said they had known where to send the messenger. They'd gone to Jesus. They knew approximately where he was at. And yet, though they had sent for him, for some reason, Jesus had not, not come. And perhaps the very messenger that they had sent had already and let them know that Jesus was not yet on his way. In any event, they know that uh, for some reason, Jesus had not returned as they had hoped, especially within the time frame that they've hoped. And now, when it's too late, he has come. And so certainly there would have been the question in their minds. And so as we look at Martha's statement here, one thing I hope we can see is that there is certainly faith and trust in Martha's statement. Look at what she says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, one thing that is probably not part of the statement, though she says, whatever you ask of God, God will give you, is probably not part of her thinking, is that, and the simple reason we know that is that when they actually come to the tomb and Jesus tells them to remove the stone, she objects. Because after four days in a culture without embalming techniques and where there's no refrigeration, the body would have by that time been in an advanced state of decay. Rigor mortis would have come and gone. The body would have grown soft. And in fact, by this point in time, would have been well into the process of decay. So she is not thinking that Jesus will raise her brother. Rather, what she is probably affirming when she says, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. In a sense, she's voicing some of the unanswered questions in her mind. Jesus has not come, and yet she is saying, Lord, I still trust in you. I still believe you are the Christ. But the Christ in her mind is one who is still this person who will deliver the nation of Israel, particularly from the hands of their oppressors, the Romans. 
And so she's saying, in a sense, I still believe that you are the Christ, even though you did not save my brother. So, so from her standpoint, she's, she's evidencing, she's showing the kind of faith that she has in Jesus. And yet we see that there is a deficiency in her understanding of Jesus's mission. And that deficiency particularly comes out in the kind of deliverance that she's expecting, the kind of Christ she believes that Jesus is. And so it, for this reason, Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again, because it is in this area, the understanding of the nature of Jesus as Messiah, that Martha is deficient in her understanding. And Martha gives, in a sense, the perfect reply. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so then Jesus is able to bring the lesson home. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And this is what must be the core of our understanding and belief and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus asks her, do you believe this? And Martha says back to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And yet, even with this affirmation, we know that in a sense, the coin hasn't dropped. Martha doesn't really understand. She hasn't bought him. Because if she understood the nature of Christ's mission and what he was saying to her, then she would not have objected when he asked for the stone to be removed. And so we see a strong parallel between what Thomas is doing and what Martha has affirmed. And so in one sense, they have an excellent theology. Martha's given the right answer to every one of Jesus's questions. And yet her understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the one who is to come into the world as Israel's Messiah, has serious deficiencies, not so much from the theological understanding, because she gives the right answer every time, but in the affections, the emotions, the understanding of the nature of his deliverance. And yet, she is one who Jesus loves and who also loves Jesus. And so here we see the tenderness of God towards us. Because in our relationship with the Lord, both Thomas and Martha and Mary, and Lazarus, and you and I do not grasp the wholeness, the greatness, the glory of Jesus Christ's mission. And we do not see that glory, and it is for 
our understanding, our grasp of God's glory, which is also to be part, and in fact, the goal of our salvation, that Jesus has come to help us understand. And the purpose for which Lazarus must die, that we better know and understand and grasp the power and the greatness and the glory of God for the salvation that he intends to achieve for us. And yet, though we do not understand in great measure, this does not hinder God's salvation and deliverance of us. And so we see in Martha our failure to understand, not God's failure to communicate, but the failure for the coin to drop, the realization to sink in on our part in terms of the fullness of what God will and has accomplished for us. And so in this first act, we see man coming to God and we come with a lack of understanding. We come with wrong desires. Our desire is not simply to worship God. Our sole purpose in life is not to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, though that is the purpose for which we have been created. And yet, this is not a hindrance in God's relationship to us, as we will see in the second act, as Mary then comes to God, when Martha goes to her and says, the teacher is here, and is calling for you. And so in the second act, we see the shepherd coming to his sheep. So Mary, along with the mourners, comes to Jesus, and she repeats very closely what Jesus has said. And in fact, in the ESV, we see the exact same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet in the second account, we see a very different response by Jesus. In verse 33, we read, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who have who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. And here I would ask us to look at three responses that are closely related together as we see the shepherd come to his sheep. And we see these three responses where it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in response to his question, where have you laid him? And they tell him, Lord, come and see. Jesus weeps. Now, what is going on here? Well, the first thing we are told is that Jesus is deeply moved, and that is a very good sense of what is going on here, although what we miss in our translation is that this idea of being 
deeply moved is generally a very serious and almost adversarial sort of emotion. And so Jesus is indeed deeply moved. We get the sense of a, an emotion that is, uh, if I could give you a picture of uh, perhaps a, a, someone being greatly provoked, someone poking a bear with a stick, you know that something is going to happen, but you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know when. Uh, the word that's translated here, deeply moved, actually has the literal sense of snorting like a horse. And this idea of being greatly troubled. And uh, this idea of being greatly troubled we've seen in other places in the Bible. Herod was greatly troubled when he heard the news of a newborn king in Jerusalem all Jerusalem was troubled with him. The disciples were troubled, greatly troubled, or distressed, or terrified when they saw Jesus walking across the water to them, and they thought he was a ghost. And so when we put these ideas together, what we don't get is the sense that Jesus is just feeling very, very, very sad. But rather that there is a power up in him that is going to lead him into action. And so as we see these powerful emotions surging within Jesus, we see two results. The first result is that Jesus weeps. Though we don't see it, the word that G John uses here for Jesus weeping is different than the usual word for weeping that he uses with Mary and the Jews that have come with her. And so one possible sense of this different word being used for Jesus weeping is that it's a different kind of weeping. Jesus' sorrow is qualitatively different. His sorrow over Lazarus is a different kind of sorrow than that of Mary and the Jews came with her. We've seen John do this uh, in other places. When the resurrected Christ confronts Peter after the resurrection, and Peter has denied him the three times, he asks Jesus, do you love me? And re Peter replies, yes, Lord. I love you. But the two words that are used there are different words. And so Jesus, when he asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agapao. Do you agapao me? Do you love me? And Peter replies back to Jesus, yes, I love you. But he uses the word phileo, from which Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, gets its name. And while there is not necessarily a difference in meaning when we use two different words, certainly we can understand if one person asks somebody, do you love me? And the person to, uh, who replies to this says, yes, I like you. There's a difference in meaning that's conveyed. And here also when John tells us that Jesus wept, he changes it 
perhaps to signal to us that the kind of sorrow that Jesus experiences is a different kind of sorrow than what Mary and the Jews face. But these emotions where Jesus is deeply moved and troubled, we see the first expression of that as he encounters this devastation that sin and death have wrought in our world. And so remember that the purpose of this entire drama is something that Jesus has orchestrated because it is by his plan, his design, that Lazarus has grown sick. And it is by his deliberate action in not coming that Lazarus dies and is laid in the tomb for four days. And Jesus' purpose throughout this is to help us understand what his mission is. And his mission is to come into this world and to free his people from all the devastation of sin and death. And as Jesus weeps here, this is not to say that Jesus was not aware of human suffering. It's not that he didn't know all these things that were going on in the world. But in one sense now, Jesus has orchestrated this event in order to help us see his heart, his mission, his purpose, and his goal. And in confronting the devastation of sin and death, in seeing and facing the consequences of what sin has brought to us, we see the heart of God. Perhaps one way I can relate this to you is there was a time when one of my friends was facing cancer. And... Uh, as he was going through this over the months and then over the years as we talked, I could see that his struggle against cancer, his fight against cancer was not going well. And he would go from one treatment to the next treatment. And as we were going through this journey together, I could see the loss of hope for this life coming. And there was a point at which one time when we were talking, he said, Hans, can you come? And so I flew out to be with him and I stayed within the hospital for a week. And there was a point in time uh, where when I was staying with him, we were praying together and we were praying in particular for his journey to go home to be with his family. And in the midst of praying for him, as I was praying for him, I began to weep. And it wasn't that I didn't know that he was dying. But rather, we were facing that time where we could see that the cancer was going to have its final consequence. And that the two of us were saying goodbye to one another. In this passage, 
as Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus, we see the heart of God. We see his compassion, his sorrow, his suffering, because of the suffering of his beloved creature. The one that he made to enjoy fellowship with him for eternity. And yet here, Jesus comes face to face with the consequences that we brought upon ourselves and continue to bring upon ourselves through our rebellion and rejection of him. This is not a God who is remote from us. This is not a God who doesn't know and understand our suffering. This is not a God who doesn't understand what it means when a husband loses a wife or a parent loses a child. This is a God who is intimately familiar with loss. This is a God who is intimately familiar with suffering. This is an infinitely compassionate God who suffers more than we do as we encounter our own losses. as we face the trials of life. We have very cheap ideas of love in our culture. But as John tells us, Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. And as he encounters what sin, suffering and death, brings into the lives of those he loves, he weeps. And this brings us to the third act in our drama because Jesus continues under the power of this strong emotion as we read in verse 38 then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb it was a cave and a stone lay against it Jesus said take away the stone and so under the power of this strong he's with him he comes to the tomb and he wants his sheep, his disciples, to begin to understand a greater reality. And this has been a characteristic of every single miracle that Jesus has performed. When he said, I am the bread of life, the sign that testified to it was the mere creation of enough food to feed 5,000 men. But the greater reality is that Jesus himself would sustain us. And as we look at the second consequence of this powerful emotion within the person of Jesus Christ, we see a second aspect of how this will work out. Towards his sheep, he is troubled greatly troubled and distressed and has compassion upon our suffering. But there is a second result of this emotion. And this is where I believe the adversarial aspect, and John highlights that in telling us that again, 
Jesus is deeply moved. It's a continuation, and it's a further outworking of the anger that Jesus has as he sees what has happened to his beloved friends. And though even despite the fact that no one has understood who he is as the Christ, who he is as the Messiah, the nature of his mission here on earth, this will not stop Jesus from displaying the glory of God. But rather, Jesus continues to work for our understanding by demonstrating the power that he has come with as a result of the great compassion and mercy he has for us. Because finally here, Jesus faces his enemy. His enemies are not the Pharisees. Consider what we've seen so far, where the Pharisees are continually plotting against Jesus' life. And yet, even with the Pharisees, Jesus is always imploring. He's always inviting. He's always warning and cautioning. Because even among the Pharisees are those who are his sheep. And he is here to show compassion to and rescue the Pharisee. But there is another adversary, ones whose weapons are sin and death, who is the enemy that Jesus, by the plan of God, has come to face. For right at the beginning of creation, there had been an adversary, one who delighted to bring humanity down into ruin, suffering, sin, and death. But God had pronounced a judgment upon that enemy. And he had said the words, you will crush, or you will bruise his heel, and he will crush your head. Jesus' anger and his power are directed against that adversary, one that he has come to break the power of. And it is for this reason that Lazarus' death is the most fitting way that he can show the glory of God in the rescue of his people. Because death is the place where God's power is most clearly seen. Satan would like us to avoid thinking about death, to always be surprised by death when it comes, never thinking about the consequences of our lives and the decisions that we have made. But death is the consequence of sin. And those in sin cannot be raised into life because life is in God and God is holy. And so there has been a separation between God ever since that first sin. But what we see here when Jesus calls out in loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, is that there is a shot fired across the bow of Satan's ship. And it's saying, you cannot 
stop me. Your most powerful weapons, those of sin and death, I can free my sheep from your bonds. There is a scene in the story of Narnia where Edmund, having been rescued by the talking animals from the power of the wicked witch, and they rescued Edmund and brought him back to Aslan. But there's still a problem because still has a claim upon Edmund. And she goes to Aslan and she tells Aslan, his life belongs to me. And so Aslan negotiates with her. And we don't get to hear that negotiation. But at the end, the white witch renounces her claim upon Edmund's life. And as she turns to go, She's still planning to destroy the children and enslave Narnia, thinking once that she has removed Aslan, that there will be none to oppose her power. But as she turns away, in a moment of doubt, she turns back and asks Aslan, but how do I know that this promise will be kept? And in response, Aslan simply roars. And the effect of that roar at which the witch simply hitches up her skirt and flees for her life demonstrates that here is a power that she cannot hope to control. And here, where Lazarus is raised by Jesus, what Jesus demonstrates through this is that here is a power that Satan cannot control. The bonds of sin and death cannot hold Lazarus because one is here who can overcome both sin and death. And this is the gospel. This sign that Jesus performed was not the great sign, not the great miracle, because Lazarus would die again. But when we understand the priority of the glory of God and the heart of the gospel in all that we do, we begin to understand what it is that Jesus has done for us. And as that realization becomes greater in our understanding, as we begin to truly buy into what it is that the gospel accomplishes. It begins to transform our lives. But I would say, just like Martha and just like Thomas, we do not appreciate the gospel for what it is. And it is for this reason that our lives lack joy. It is for this reason that our lives lack the confidence that we ought to have as we move in the world. What do we pray for? We pray for exams. We pray for health. We pray for career moves. Do we pray that God would be glorified in our redemption? Because all these other things that we pray for are very temporary things. If someone recovers from an illness, 
they only recover for a time. They're still going to die. I'm still going to die. You're still going to die. But what the promise of God is, is that the power of sin and death have been removed from us. And is this enough? Does this become the heart of our lives? Is this the center of our faith? There are many ways in which we don't live this out in our lives. There are many ways where we fail to see the centrality of the gospel to our mission. A number of years ago, a man by the name of Richard Stearns, who was at the time the head of a very large um, relief organization, wrote a book, The Whole in Our Gospel. And what he argued for was a priority of meeting people's physical needs. But what he did there, in a sense, was actually put, ironically, a hole in the gospel. Because what Jesus does is he clearly prioritizes and shows the importance of our spiritual needs over our physical needs. Because Lazarus dies. He uses physical death to show the importance and the priority of our spiritual life with God over our physical needs. And as long as our focus, our desires are oriented toward this world and its needs, we will fail to see the glory of God in our lives. What we need is have a vision for the gospel that transcends our earthly circumstances. Can we, like Paul and Silas, sing in prison because we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ? Is the gospel at the heart of the mission of our church? Is the name of Jesus Christ exalted in our ministries? If we do these things, we will see the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, whom the Father exalts. Let's pray. Father God, my eyes are so blind to these things. My heart is so inclined to the things of this world. And yet I do see that when I turn to you, when I look in your word, when I encounter you in the lives of my fellow believers, I begin to see. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. You would help us understand that we must turn away from our fixation upon the things of this world, its careers, its jobs, its hopes, its aspirations, because all of these things will one day end up in the grave. If we have trusted in you, it will set everything right. But if we make your gospel secondary, it sets everything wrong. Help us live as a redeemed people, your sheep, who hear your voice and follow the good shepherd. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, if you could all stand with me for a song of response. Thank mm -hmm. you.
gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will deepen me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No faith. I know I am forgiven The future sure The price it has been paid For Jesus bled And suffered for my pardon And he was raised To overthrow the grave To this I hold my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. Shall we 
so much for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, that we may be raised from the dead in his resurrection. Lord, I thank you so much for raising us up you and seating us with you in the heavenly places that your riches the riches of your grace would be made known lord i pray that um, this truth would not leave our minds or our hearts that we would continue to um, just gaze upon your glory um, to behold your love and just carry out your mission lord to make you known. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, as we conclude today's service, um, let's sing the doxology. Please rise for the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, please stay with us and thankfully today we've uh, been able to worship together through Zoom.